This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. Today we talk to UAW, that's United Auto Worker, 2865 Strikers, Sarah Mason and Jack Davies of UC Santa Cruz and Jonathan Guy at UC Berkeley about the University of California strike, the largest strike ever in American higher education. It's crunch time for the UC system as term ends and grades are due. The academic workers are demanding significant pay increases, childcare reimbursements, and the remission of non-residential supplemental tuition. They recognize that this strike has the potential to change the existing model of university education. We'll get their analysis, experience, and hopes for the strike. I then talked to Michael Goldfield about the showdown in rail. President Biden pushed through a bill forcing a contract on 115,000 overworked and exhausted rail workers who've been fighting for paid sick leave. The demand for paid sick days is a placeholder for all the quality of life issues that railroad workers are facing after years of austerity while the rail companies enjoyed record profits. Biden invoked the 100-year-old Railway Labor Act to avert the strike, asking Congress to impose a settlement and compel the workers to accept a contract. Labor historian Mike Goldfield explains why this arcane act to prevent transportation workers from striking came into being and why it's still in effect. All this when our program returns in just a moment. This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman, and today it's all about the strike at UC. I'm really pleased to be able to finally do this. For those who have noticed, there's 48,000 UC academic workers on strike. It's now uh, The strike is now a month old. It began in November, November 14th. And this is the largest and most important strike ever in American higher education. Campuses across California, and there are 10 UC campuses, have been brought to a standstill. Labs are closed. Papers and assignments are unread and ungraded. And this is finals week. So this is crunch time. Grad students have walked off the job. Professors have canceled class and even construction staff have put down their tools in solidarity. The strike, as I mentioned, began on November 15th. And has already forced the UC system to come to a tentative agreement with postdoc scholars and academic researchers to raise their pay by 29%. But these workers have continued to stay away in support of the approximately 36,000 grad student employees who remain on strike. And now both sides have consented to allowing mediation amid stalled contract negotiations. The workers include teaching assistants, postdoc scholars, grad student researchers, tutors, and fellows, and perform, well, I should say most of the work uh, in teaching and research at the state's premier higher education system. And the university, for their part, insists that these grad workers, student workers, are only part-time and have offered uh, minimum salaries. And I'm going to let our guests tell everybody just exactly what that is. But as I mentioned, the pressure is on. And right now, the university is just getting a taste of what the power of their super exploited workforce. So we are very fortunate uh, to have Sarah Mason back with us. She's a TA at Santa Cruz and is the head steward with UAW 2865. 
one of the lead organizers at UC Santa Cruz. We're also joined by Jonathan Guy, who's a tutor and department steward with UAW 2065 at UC Berkeley, and Jack Davies, a teaching fellow and unit chair of UAW 2865 at UC Santa Cruz. I'll speak a a second more. Uh, We last spoke to Sarah at the end of 2019 when the graduate TAs or teaching assistants held a wildcat grade strike, meaning they were withholding the most powerful weapon they have, recording the grades that students earn throughout the term. So the administration would get the message that grad student TAs don't earn enough to pay rent triple to a room in expensive Santa Cruz. And they were demanding a COLA or cost of living adjustment to address the skyrocketing cost of uh, living, but no adjustment in compensation. The pandemic put that strike on hold. And so now here we are three years later uh, and housing prices have only gotten worse and the issues of the strike have only continued. So with all of that, I want to welcome you. I'm very happy that you're here today and I can't wait to hear everything you have to say. So let me just start, not with the big picture, but with what the demands are of the strike. And I'll let any one of you begin. Am I sensitive for me to take this? um, Jack, okay. Yeah. So the the, the major uh, sort of top line level demands uh, throughout the the contract fight in general have been to eliminate rent burden for graduate workers in the UC. Uh, By this, we mean uh, we need our salaries adjusted such that we would only spend a maximum of 30% of our monthly income on our rent. Uh, research by our own union shows that uh, well over 90% of grad workers are rent burdened, and one in two are severely rent burdened, meaning that more than half of their paycheck goes into the rent each month. Uh, in addition to this, we we need a far better childcare support than we currently have. We need better rules and regulations around uh, disability access, and we need uh, to remove the the non-resident supplemental tuition that is charged to international graduate students like myself. Mm, Okay. And so, and I also understood that in some places, they're also requesting public transit uh, passes and lower tuition for international scholars. So it's kind of, there's solidarity and, and a question of egality at issue as well. But what about the other thing, just before we get in how the demands differ, could could one of you perhaps address what your stipend or, or, or what your wage is right now and what it is that you're asking for? Yeah, definitely. Jonathan. So, I am happy to. So I guess the way that um, most people's compensation works, most graduate students' compensation works, is that um, they're paid first a base wage that's based on the um, at least formally recognized labor that they do for the university, either as a student researcher or an academic student employee. Um, for academic and student employees, that rate is currently around $23,000 a year. Um, some students also receive a, a top, what's called a top-up, which is like an additional stipend um, from their department. But one of the you know most challenging things is that these differ dramatically across schools and across departments, which creates a lot of wage inequality between workers. But still, despite the fact that some workers do get paid this top up, to mm-hmm. Jack's point, um, pretty much all of us are severely rent burdened. And, you know, one of the things that we're hoping to do is like create a much higher base wage um, that like lifts the floor for everyone. But it's not a base wage, let's say a blanket demand, because I remember in the beginning, people were saying they're asking to have their wages doubled. And then UC came back with, I think, uh, you know, like what would represent 
29%, uh, but not 50 or 100%. So, but but what you're saying, uh, Jonathan, is that it depends on the sector and the place. Is that right? Yeah, but for practically everyone, the money wage that they're receiving right now is lower than our base wage demand, which was um, $54,000 a year. I mean, that number was calculated as um, the number that would be required to lift us out of rent burden, every every single one of us, no matter our campus. And yeah, the university's initial offer, I think, got us up to a, a base wage of, I think, approximately 28 or 29K by 2026. Um, they've since moved, albeit very slightly. Um, but that just gives you a sense of the disparity between what they think is okay to pay us and what actually is. Do the demands, I mean, you you sort of alluded to it and anybody can jump in on this question, but do the demands differ much from campus to campus and between the various disciplines and sectors? I know that if you think about it, you know, you have uh, La Jolla, Santa Cruz, uh, Berkeley and Santa Barbara as some of the highest rent districts in the country. Uh, and, and then you have, let's say, Riverside. Um, Modesto, Davis, which I presume are slightly lower rent districts, but not not much lower. So are the demands the same? The demands have, have uh, been standard for every campus and, and they're initially calculated at the median. I think it's worth saying that the, 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 the point is not to win uh, an increase of, you know, 100% of 120%. The, the point is that we need to be paid a living wage need to be paid enough to, to live where we work right now. And in the UC, as you say, there is unevenness. The top-up issue is, is I think, like a relatively minor one by comparison to the differences in, in, in the rent across the state. But it's, it's, of course, no, it's not a problem if someone is living somewhere and is only paying 20% of their income in rent. What matters is that no one is paying more than 30. This is the, the really important thing, we think. And it makes it, you know, something that has universality, not just in academia, except that, you know, of course, the model in academia has been such that, you know, very low wage labor. Um, so I wanted to move to the big picture. But before we do that, um, because you've you started with that, um, Jack, but I wanted to talk um, or maybe get one of you to just talk a little bit about the union that is representing you. It's UAW and you have, you know, various chapters. But as Nelson Lichtenstein has said in an article in Descent, that this is now the largest section of UAW, larger than auto, and this is the largest strike. And he's called UC the General Motors of higher education. I really like that. And he says that the A in UAW, I'm sure you've heard this a million times, but the A in UAW used to be for United Auto Workers, but it might as well now be for United Academic Workers. And given that, you know, the UC is a national institution and it's now the largest strike in the country, this has gigantic implications. And this kind of takes us into the larger picture about the way university or higher education is now organized in this country. And it makes uh, what you're doing so important. And and in fact, he says, Nelson calls this uh, more like one of the epic showdowns of General Motors uh, from the 1930s or Ford in the 1970s when the union was the vanguard in America. And I, I really like that he put it in those terms because, you know, it's it's good to recognize the social weight that you actually have. So can one of you talk just a little bit about how it came to be that you got the UAW to represent you and maybe a little bit more about that? So basically, 
the UAW has been attempting to organize or had been attempting to organize uh, UC workers since the 1980s. Essentially, like I think for for folks who you know folks who are familiar with labor movement know that like the big movement in the 1960s and 70s was in the public sector, starting in Wisconsin, but also in, in many other where I'm from, but also many other states. Right, there was this big movement to get public school teachers unionized, and I think that after that was over, you know, the next big frontier, um, at least for a lot of unions, um, a lot of the labor movement was um, graduate student instructors. Um, thanks to hostile labor law, this actually took many decades um, uh, to, to happen. And um, I know that, for example, they went on strike for recognition um, in 93. It wasn't until 99 that we were actually recognized as a union. But I will say that I, I think that UAW is a a union that has, at least in the past 20, 25 years, really attempted to expand into the service sector, attempted in addition to trying to like organize new auto plants in the South, attempted to expand the kind of occupations that they cover. But I, I think that, that that sort of like ideas like uh, is still very aligned with this idea of industrial unionism, right? That like workers, even if they have different jobs, even, even if they work in possibly different sectors, um, should be like united and, you know, as part of one like bigger fight. So... I would just offer, I think the fact that we're in UAW is, is just reflected broadly of like major structural developments in the U.S. economy over the, the last 50 or so years, just as, you know, the, the workplace has moved into more and more service sectors, including education. So have the big uh, industrial unions that were based in Detroit around the auto industry, for example. Right. So that maybe, you know, before I ask then about how all that organizing got done, let's let's move there because we really do need to kind of understand what has happened to the university. And it even affects me. I teach in a small liberal arts college in the Bay Area. And it was, you know, like like a liberal arts college, like primarily teaching. We had when I started, I think around 70, 80 percent were tenure track professors. And the goal was to have all tenure track faculty so that we wouldn't be, you know, exploiting and all. And and here we are now, 25, 30 years later, and we have more than 75 percent of the faculty are adjunct and they're trying to get rid of everybody else so that they can go all adjunct. And so something has happened in higher education. We often talk about it like the neoliberalization of the university. And we're very aware of, you know, the administrative bloat that we all have and the fact that teaching is regarded less and less, even though this has got to be the premier thing that happens at a university. So maybe I could get you to comment on what's happened and what's happened even in the time that you've been at the university. I could offer just a brief observation, which is that even in a public university like the University of California, uh, we've seen since the turn of the century, like major, major increases in tuition for undergraduate students, as well as massively expanding uh, enrollments. So, you know, we have these, these students graduating out of Californian high schools into the UC. And of course, when they leave high school, there's no job you could find that could hope to pay your uh, rent, especially along the coast where you might have grown up. So it's essentially, there, there is no other option but to go into the university. And, and the reason you go there is to is to be indebted, to have access to that debt, because you accumulate student debt just to pay to live in your dorm, to have access to the dining halls, these sorts of things. And, and with this incredible growth, you get a, a need for more and more instruction laborers. And of course, the, the more casual, the more insecure, the cheaper we can be. This explains the sort of huge growth in the number of PhD students, for example, in, in California. And 
I think this is important context uh, in the background for the the description, or so the broad picture you've offered us, Susie, of a shift mm-hmm. from tenured faculty, you know, small small number, highly secure, you know, well educated, etc., faculty instructing students at elite public institutions, shifting to you know masses of, of casualized workers, precarious workers, uh, just just keeping these larger larger numbers of undergraduates who have nowhere else to turn in the university accumulating debt. I think that's the background for why you see graduate workers in a place like California in a union uh, undertaking industrial activity like striking. This is a, a group of people who are becoming proletarianized workers. If a generation or two ago, we were elite uh, researchers and educators and these kinds of things. But it's also, and I, and I see maybe Sarah wants to come in, but it's also just this question. I'm glad you used the word proletarianized. But the university administration sees you as, what, as part-time temporary and that, you know, I guess the contract is that we won't pay you very much, but you're going to get, you know, a great job afterwards. But that's also part of what's broken, right? And I see, you know, so many young people now. You know, when I when I was applying for my first academic job, it was tough. It was really hard because the crisis had begun. But now it's much, 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 much worse. And and I'd like to hear a little bit, you know, about that, because, you know, as parents, we tell we think there's no better investment that in our children than investing in their education. But we also, you know, not just in terms of making them thinking wonderful, socially active human beings, but we think also that they'll be able to have a comfortable life. So I'd like to hear, you know, your reflections on that as people who are now, you know, in grad school, about to go out on the job market, perhaps, you know, how do you see it? And do you see yourself as part of the low-wage workforce? I mean, speaking from just my experience with this, the job prospects are extremely grim. And this is, of course, connected to what I was just saying about the huge number increasing of, of grad students. So uh, my experience of this, and, and it's also for people of our generation, it's rare to have a job for six, seven, eight years like you do in grad school. So this is you know, a substantial period of our employment, right? Um, it's not a transitional phase. We're unlikely to have a job before or after that lasts this long, and, and only a tiny portion of us will ever take this step into the, the ladder of the ivory tower or whatever. Uh, it's much more likely that, that we will not so for me, uh, I'm here and my position exists, my job exists because I can teach these indebted students. And any research I do, any job application, any article I write, this is a byproduct. This is just happens on the side in the time I can have in between other stuff. The real reason and the, the existence for my PhD position is so I can keep these students in the classroom. I can I can submit their grades at the end of the quarter. I can keep their financial aid and student debt rolling over to the next term. I wanted to ask a question, and I know maybe I can get Sarah to talk a little bit about just this one part, and that is how you guys were able to organize so successfully. It's almost like we shouldn't count the pandemic because everything was just on the back burner during that time. And I know in Santa Cruz, you did have the wildcat strike before that for a cola. And then all of a sudden now we have this the biggest strike in the country in a period in which we're seeing more and more worker militancy, 273 Starbucks stores have have organized, Apple stores are organizing, even Target and Amazon, you know, a mixed record. But workers, 
and of course, rail. And so what we're seeing, you know, is that we're finally beginning to get the kind of fight back that so many of us have hoped for for a very long time. And it's also, I think, maybe good medicine for the naysayers who say, oh, they're just not an important sector. It's not industrial or it's, you know, whatever, but it is industrial or it is reflecting the the kind of economy that we have at the present. But I think what's really amazing and what you could offer, you know, to all these people who are out there trying to organize in the private sector and elsewhere, where they're so frightened to sign the union card or to do anything. And here at UC, it's hard to find opposition to this strike. All of a sudden, all these workers just were happy to join the union. Professors are happy to go along, or maybe not happy is the right word, but they're going along. I can say that on our campus, the organizing that we've done that we've been doing in the lead up to the strike has really been to orient people towards the idea of a long struggle, a long fight. We didn't think that the boss was going to kind of look at our strike authorization vote numbers and like run to the table and just start like surrendering. Um, We, you know, understood the UC is by some accounts, the largest employer in the state. The state is, you know, Mm -hmm. the sixth largest economy in the world. Um, this is not uh, it's larger not, than the government right now. Yeah, it's it's not. I mean, we we didn't think this was going to be an easy fight at all, um, and that's exactly what we're seeing. But I want to ask it. Oh, I'm sorry, I interrupted you. <laughs> no, I just wanted to ask a question um, within that because there's several things that you have. You see that, you know, other industries would like, and that is that all the contracts expire at the same time. So that's one. It's not true. Oh, it is. Uh, okay. I, I read that it was. Okay. So help me understand all of that. But it just seems like the other thing, you know, if you look at what K through 12 organizers were having to do in the strikes that happened, you know, in the, in 2019 and in the Red for Ed, but especially in California, was to have this component of getting community support, parent support. And it just seems to me like, even though you say, Sarah, that that measure, I think it was Measure M, was resoundingly defeated. And in Los Angeles, you know, rent control was defeated, but it wasn't because people were opposed to it. It was because they were outgunned by the big interests and the money and the advertising from landlords and others. But so it's just really more of a question about, you know, the kind of public support that you have and how much you had to do to get it. On the measure, on the rent burden, sorry, the rent control measure, I would just add, though, that what we learned specifically going through the Measure M campaign in Santa Cruz and then into our wildcat strike was, sure, it was like the same issues, broadly speaking, but we had power as workers. We didn't have power at the ballot box in Santa Cruz. You know, we were mm-hmm. able to really shift things and to and to make some some important steps, not as far as we needed to, and we're now continuing that next sequence of the fight. But it was by, as Sarah said, articulating ourselves as workers to this issue that we've been able to see dramatic, some dramatic motion towards what we need, where we could not, we weren't even close, not even close at the ballot box. What about this other issue of, you know, now that, you know, Sarah began to talk about in the organizing, you had to tell people that this was for the long haul, this was not going to be short. And now, of course, this is the crunch time. This is when grades, you know, when students are wondering if what's going to happen to them if they don't get their grades. Does that mean that you think support will erode? Or is there are some people, I guess, scabbing in some way, you know, or finding a way to 
give the students their grades so or whatever i just want to know like what you face now as the strike has gone on for a month and there's you know today's la times has a big article about how you've agreed to having or that there's now agreement to get an independent or uh, mediator to intervene to on these contract negotiations that shows that you're really making a huge impact at this critical time so what happens next So I guess the one thing that I would say first to broaden a little bit is that the grading strike, the withholding of grades is just like one part of the strike. So 2865 is like academic student employees, but actually part of the huge bill up to the strike has been the unionization of student researchers as well. And I think they face very different challenges and and very different timelines in terms of withholding their labor. So I've been part of both unions I think also they were like the SRU campaign, you know, they were recognized because they threatened a strike last fall, really helped extend like the unions, both unions uh, power and and presence in STEM departments, which has historically been pretty weak. And so what I would say is that like, I, I think one of the key difficulties, there are, there are things that are specific to ASCs, right? Like getting faculty to not pick up the work of GSIs that has been left on the table. I think also students, I mean, students and especially parents of students have like a lot of uh, political clout in Sacramento. Um, and so I think organizing students to apply pressure on faculty and to, to blame the UC rather than student um, graduate students is important. Yeah, AS, that's right. Thank you, Jack. Um, Academic student employee is what ASE is. Yeah, that's right. Um, readers, tutors, um, GSIs. And uh, what is GSI? Graduate student, student instructor, TA. Instructor. Yeah, it's, it's real <laughs> alphabet soup of terms um, yeah. that can be hard to, yeah, remember that you've internalized. But anyway, so I, and I and, but I but I do think that at the same time, you know, there is just just as all these grades are being withheld by these GSIs, there is a, also an equal number of uh, workers who are facing under incredible pressure from their PIs um, to go back and you know start working again, right? And I think for them, their like research productivity you know, upon which their career rest is also much more intimately, intimately tied to their job. And so they face a lot of, uh, a lot of greater pressures uh, as individuals. And that's, that's, that's been a real organizing challenge, you know, but I think, uh, you know, to your point, Susie, you made earlier about how sometimes people don't see graduate students as workers, but especially, you know, in the case of student researchers, like these are, there are companies in Silicon Valley making billions of dollars based on the intellectual property and intellectual and ideas that were created in labs by student researchers here at UC Berkeley, at UCLA, at Santa Cruz and other parts of the UC. And so, you know, if you, if you have situations where faculty are threatening to say to the 20 students, right, who they probably make more than all those 20 graduate students combined, like, if you don't go back to work, I am going to, and make sure you don't have an academic career. That's a very difficult thing to organize around. And it's something that we've been grappling with at the same time. It also really, makes it, it's a really great way of building class consciousness consciousness right you know i mean as people say like the best organizer is the boss or is, is a bad boss or and, and that's definitely been true as well but have you noticed that you know students have joined i don't know picket lines demonstrations rallies they're they're supportive even now at the end of the term yeah, yeah. 
Absolutely. I I mean, the undergraduate students have been indispensable in terms of the help that they've provided on the picket line. I'm pretty sure, you know, our entire kitchen that's feeding the picket line is mostly run by undergraduate students. I wanted to say something quickly about mediation, which is like, I don't think it's as big of a story as um, the LA Times would have you believe. Um, I think the way that we're sort of understanding mediation is that you know, it's another venue where a deal can be reached. It really doesn't have anything to do with what we're doing on the ground, which is getting people to recommit to the strike for the long haul, um, building up people's confidence to be able to withstand the pressure that's starting to come down from the university. Uh, this is our work. This is this is our task. What what's happening in, in mediation um, is is you know not our primary concern. There's something else I wanted to bring up and that, you know, and I actually learned this from you, Sarah, in the 2019 strike. And that was, you know, when you were talking about the incredible crush of uh, housing prices, um, it came out that that the University of California was one of the largest landlords. And then, you know, as we went into the pandemic and there was this you know, in the beginning, everybody agreed on remote teaching. And then, you know, then all of a sudden there was this rush to go back. And I was trying to understand it on my own campus too. Before the pandemic, let's say danger was over, they wanted to put everybody back into classrooms. And then, of course, I remembered what you had said, because then, of course, you begin to realize that the other side of the business of the university is to get kids in dorms, because that's their real estate. And that's a huge part of their uh, income, right? So they're they're both providing an education, but also collecting rent. So I think you and Jack were both quoted in a New Republic article that's called the University of California is also a landlord. And it says, you know, the subtitle is if McDonald's is a real estate company that sells hamburgers, the UC system is a real estate company that sells degrees. So this is part of the understanding that you all have. But I don't think the larger public really knows this or has really put it together. So can you talk a little bit about that that part of the struggle? And I guess Jack's going to start. Yeah, there's several things you could say about this. I mean, uh, firstly, it it links in directly with what we're what we're demanding and what we're striking over. Because right now, as rents go up through California, uh, as workers, you know, we have less and less money to spend on things we need to spend on because a higher proportion of our income goes to rent. So over the the life of the last contract uh, that expired um, this last summer. In Santa Cruz, the rents went up some sixty-seven percent, right? But that's not just land, you know, local landlords only who are uh, benefiting from this. The UC itself is on the upside of these movements, and in many cases, is a, is a major lever behind them. And if I take our example here in Santa Cruz, you know, there there are thousands and thousands of undergraduates who live up on the hill on campus and pay in again through student loans, not not out of their pocket, um, mm-hmm. through the student loans that will follow them around you know, just under or maybe even over at this point, $15,000 to rent uh, one bed in a quad with like th- with three other people for nine months of the year, right? So this is a major driver of, of the rent, you know, the problems that we see in a place like Santa Cruz. And it's not only, of course, Santa Cruz. And so when we say that the UC is a major landlord, we mean, of course, the just the huge number of undergraduates who live and pay rent through student loans to the UC, but they also own a lot of property around California, huge amounts. 
hotels, dormitories that are off campus. So, you know, we're talking about um, a major part of UC's portfolio is uh, its real estate holdings. And when we as workers who are employed by the UC, who in many of our cases are brought to California to be employees of the UC, we're talking about workers who are coming in and who year on year are on the downside of this like insane increase in you know in inflation and in real estate values while UC is benefiting all the time. So this you know is a major thing where not just as workers but as tenants, you know, we're, we're combating a sort of single boss and landlord. Uh, in one, and, and this is what is important about our demand, I think, uh, and where it can translate elsewhere. Yeah, I want to say one other thing about this, which is that, you know, for many for many people, the UC is both boss and landlord, right? It's a company town. So you get your paycheck and you pay 65% of it back to your boss in rent. UC likes to sort of say, well, we can't control um, the rental market. You know, we have no... We, you know, our hands are tied, we can't do anything. But the fact of the matter is, even in the in their own housing that they provide, even their own on-campus housing, um, people are still incredibly rent burdened at the rates that UC charges. There's another thing, you know, that Jack said that I find absolutely amazing. And that is, you know, that so much of this also comes out of the uh, loans that students have to pay for their education. So they're indebted. And this would really, it, it might be good if uh, one of you could start to address how much has changed that, you know, the state has really reneged on its part in investing in higher education and so much more now is done privately and the burden is on you, but also it, just in the financial aid as well, right? That that's also become privatized and and here you have it. Is it the case that, you know, as you just said, Sarah, uh, the university pays you poorly, but then takes 65% back uh, in rent that you, you know, if you live on campus or in married student housing or any of these other apartments that they may have constructed around town, not necessarily just dorms, but also what percentage, you know, of the money that they loan you in order to do education, uh, you know, is then paid back in, you know, in these higher rents? I would say something yeah, briefly yeah. on this that uh, just to clarify, most grad students are not, some are taking on loans to basically afford to yeah, live no. where they are working, et cetera. But when we're talking about the student debt and the rents on campus, we're talking more about undergraduate students. And some of them do work in our, and are in our union, but um, that's a, a minority by comparison to the, the larger body here. But what is relevant is that so much of this entire um, system depends on the accumulating debts for these uh, undergraduates who in most cases come uh, directly out of high school and this when you talk about this renege of uh, reneging of this problem of a, of a of a public institution that would educate the youth of California and you know prepare them for uh, you know a future that you know is maybe better than the one that their parents had or, or whatever ideas mm-hmm. we might have I think uh, and we see this like, pivot in a couple of generations massively and, and people have written on this. But I think what must be said in this context is this is happening precisely as the university is drawing in more and more people, drawing in more and more historically underserved, marginalized communities and celebrating itself for being uh, more diverse, more equitable, more inclusive. But it is including these people precisely on the condition that they don't get the deal that people used to get generations ago. They get instead tens, sometimes hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt interest bearing that they have to pay immediately, that they cannot default on, 
at any time. It's the only debt in the United States you cannot default on, uh, which can go up to their parents, can go down to their children. And this is the sort of background here is precisely as the university celebrates its, um, you know, growing social inclusivity, um, it is, you know, it is extracting more and more from these people and not giving them the deal that uh, was so was the deal in the past. And how, how did Rilo? <laughs> yeah, I <know>. <laughs> <laughs> we just got a new class struggle element entering the picture, little Rilo, and she's waving. So just <laughs> just for that. But I wanted to thank you for that. And just to talk about, you know, because you're talking about, you know, Sarah b- mentioned that you're in it for the long haul. Now we've got a deeper understanding of who's paying what and what it has meant, you know, to be more diverse for that that implicit bargain about what education is going to provide being broken in this sense. And so what, you know, it's really like Sarah mentioned that the fact that there's a mediator coming in to perhaps negotiate, you know, or to uh, kickstart stalled negotiations. What is it that you think is next and what is possible? You know, others have talked about uh, Nelson Lichtenstein said this, this strike has the potential of changing the model of higher education. Uh, We're seeing that there was a one-day strike at the new school. Um, There's other grad students that have been on strike elsewhere. So can you say something about like where you see it going from here and and what you see as the role as your organizers of that? Uh, Either one of you, Jonathan or Jack? So in terms of mediation, I think ultimately... I mean, I echo uh, Jack and Sarah that like, well, it might help us get a better sense of like what the immediate options are on the table for the UC. Like ultimately, the best deal we can get will depend on how long we're able to keep this strike going and how long we'll be able to um, make the UC understand that we're not going away, that this is going to create a structural crisis for the university, a structural crisis for the state of California, right? And so... Part of that is an organizing challenge. It means that we get people to understand, even if they didn't understand at the beginning, that this is a long fight. This is going to require a lot of endurance. It's going to require taking measures like de-emphasizing the picket line um, when when necessary um, and building a lot more community support. The kitchens have been a great part of that on a lot of campuses. But also I think it, get, it requires people to really understand how their labor when withdrawn costs the university. And that can come in the form of grade strikes. It could come, you know, God forbid, if the strike continues into next semester, you know, threatening the accreditation of the university um, because they need us to teach a certain number of hours. And I think it requires keeping people's expectations high, right? Like if people don't have a sense that there's going to be um, something in it, if if this isn't going to transform their lives, if it isn't going to make things better, then they're more likely to want to go back to work. And so I think that's like a critical part of uh, being an organizer is, is not understanding at like morale is something that is just, the you know, existence reserve at the beginning of a strike and is then depleted, but is continually renewed through enge- engaged struggle with the employer and through at adept uh, organizing. So anyway. Well, I'd like to just add, because it occurred to me as you were speaking, that this is unlike, let's say, Uh, other strikes in other industries, that there isn't a huge reserve army of labor that can just come in at the last minute and take your places. I know at the last, you know, in the um, in the Wildcat strike, 
that UC Santa Cruz fired, like, I think it was 83 or more of these. Uh, yeah, okay, it looks like Jack was one of the fired. Um, but then you guys came back. And so it's a question, like, what does the UC do? They're now, like, they, you guys have put them up against the wall, right? Because what are they going to do, fire everybody? And then that screws their everything for them. So I guess the question is twofold. One, what can they do in this unique situation? And two, does it make you more aware of, um, you know, the historic importance of this strike and, and I guess, your own social weight? Jack, go ahead. I would also that there's, there's two sides to this, as you said. One is you, you're absolutely correct to say we're very hard to replace. Imagine, you know, a scene of a, a busload of uh, highly yeah. specialized uh, physicists crossing a picket line to go in to pick up work that's not happening in a laboratory. It's, it's yeah. of course, absurd. And the same is true of, of the teaching labor. If to a lesser extent, it's still very hard to find people to replace us on the scale they would need. But a, another consequence of, um, our particular workplace. And what we do is that the strike needs to be long. Yeah. Our power cannot be exercised on the UC within a week or two. This is not a port. You know, this it's is hard. not an plan, right? So yeah. even if we were to close down um, several campuses entirely for a week, uh, you could imagine it would be disruptive, but the UC would adapt. They would shift some timelines back and, you know, things would, would, would move on. But, uh, yeah. and as Jonathan was describing, the, the sort of accumulative effects of a long haul strike um, is is the only thing that we think, not mediation, not bargaining, this is the only thing that's going to get the UC to move uh, in the way that we need them to. And with regard to all this other stuff, it's just a question of keeping people's resolve on, you know, in the strategy of the long haul strike, which might contain many phases, including mediation, including grey book holding, including instruction, including uh, moving into the next term over the winter break. These are all just phases in a, in a longer strategy, and that strategy is the only way that we can get this thing to a reasonable outcome, because the only reasonable outcome here is the end of rent burden. Everything else is an unreasonable outcome, regardless of what they'll say about the percentage of the increase. There's only one acceptable outcome. This is so interesting because, again, you're letting us understand how unique your position is. In most industries, you would say a very long strike is not a good one because everybody gets worn down. It gets too hard to continue. You start to have people walk away. Others will finally cross a picket line. But here you're saying this is your strategy. So how hard is that to keep people's morale up to continue that? I want to say something about this because I think, you know, one of the things that we heard coming into this strike was that you know, our power was greatest on the eve of a strike. Our power is greatest on the eve of a strike. And I think this really, you know, comes from this idea that after that, you know, power is just waning, right? People are just peeling off. People are, um, people are getting tired. And I think one thing that we're seeing on our campus, and I, and I think on other campuses as well, is that we actually understand that the longer that this goes, at least in this moment, the more time we have to actually build our numbers, right? I mean, there are, uh, I think, you know, specifically on the researcher side, a number of researchers who are still getting on board with the strike. Um, I don't know, Jonathan, would you say that that's, that that's right? I would, I would say that there are definitely people coming back out to the picket line. I would say that 
there's definitely, you know, the, like with most strikes, you know, over time, the number of people who are striking goes down. But I think the important thing is to be able to hold out for as for a lot longer than the university thinks you are. And, you know, and that, in that sense, you teach, you know, you, they gain information that they didn't have before, right? Like if the university, you know, I think, you know, the university thought that a lot of these cases like, okay, maybe they'll go out for one or two weeks, but then everyone's going to go back. And I think that what we're showing is that's actually not true. And, you know, and if, if they really want to avoid the full cost of the strike, they're going to have to settle with us. Um, that's the way I would, I would, I would put it. Yeah. Maybe if it's okay to just kind of clarify what I was saying is I think in addition to, you know, there are a number of researchers who really understood that like the power of the strike was the kind of numbers on the picket line. Um, and what I'm seeing now are researchers who are kind of really rethinking that. And they're thinking more in terms of like research deadlines, grant deadlines, withholding certain data. And because of this re rethinking, you have researchers who previously weren't sold on this idea that, oh, just our aggregate power, like of researchers on the picket is going to move things. They're now starting to come around to the idea that like, yeah, actually maybe we do have some, some really specific leverage points that we can use. Um, and they're talking more seriously about joining the strike and staying on strike. I think on top of that, you also, I think we're seeing a lot of faculty organizing um, taking place, right? I mean, faculty are having these kind of one-on-one conversations with their, with their colleagues you know, informing them what are their rights and protections, trying to figure out, okay, who's, who's planning to submit grades? How can we move them? In this way, I think, you know, we should understand that the strike is growing. And that's, you know, that's great. <laughs> I mean, this is brilliant. And we actually are running out of time. And I really am very appreciative that, you know, we kind of let this go further. But I'm starting to get this general idea about just how important these actions are. And, you know, it's also an optimistic one um, because you're talking about something that just started that you've got right on your side, but you're getting a lot of support. And I guess the only uh, the only unanswered question is, how is UC going to respond? This threatens everything. You guys really, you stuck them where it hurts. <laughs> so, all right. Well, I know one thing I do know is that, you, you know, I got a leaflet from Sarah um, that tomorrow in Santa Cruz, there is going to be a big rally. And it's, it's also very um, important that uh, some of your speakers there include uh, not just um, a tenants union, but also from Rail Workers United, because that's another big struggle in a very different context, uh, because it's, it's, it doesn't adhere to the same labor law that, that let's say you do. And I'm, we've been stressing on how unique your situation and your strike is. And because it's so large, how important it is. So I want to thank all of you. Thanks for what you're doing. And I'm wishing you all every continued success. And I hope I can get you to come back uh, because this strike is not over. And it's going to come up with some very, I think, probably unique and creative ways to keep organizing. So I wish you all the very, very best. Anybody want to, you know, offer a final thought, maybe some rabble rousing? 
No. All right. Well, I have been speaking um, to Sarah Mason. She's a she's in sociology and is a TA or a teaching assistant at UC Santa Cruz and is the head steward with UAW United Academic Workers slash United Auto Workers uh, 2865. I have to say they organized us as journalists at one point, too. Um, and then uh, also uh, Jonathan Guy, who's a tutor and department steward with UAW 2865 at UC Berkeley, and Jack Davies, a teaching fellow and unit chair of UAW 2865 at Santa Cruz. Thanks so much and not, wishing you nothing but the best of luck in the struggle. Thank you, Susie. Thank, Thank you. you, Susie. All right. Thank so, you so much, Susie. Thank you, Mel. This is Jacobin Radio, and welcome to the program. I'm Susie Wiseman. On December 2nd, President Biden pushed through a bill forcing a contract on 115,000 overworked and exhausted rail workers who've been fighting their profit-soaked employers for paid sick leave. Paid sick days were the key demand, but Ross Gruders of Railroad Workers United said it was simply a placeholder for all of the quality of life issues that railroad workers are facing after years of austerity while the rail companies enjoyed record profits. The unions had given a deadline of December 9th to agree on their demands or they would walk out on strike just as holiday shopping got underway. Facing the immediate prospect of a strike that would have greatly disrupted the American economy, President Biden asked Congress to impose a settlement fashioned by a board that he appointed, averting a strike by compelling the workers to accept a contract that included major pay raises for the rail workers, but in the face of adamant corporate opposition, failed to include sick days. Under the authority granted them by the 100-year-old Railway Labor Act, Congress voted to impose that settlement. A separate measure to add paid sick days to the deal cleared the House in a party-line vote, but failed to win enough Republican support to clear the 60-vote hurdle in the Senate. Biden could still force the rail companies to pay sick leave, by expanding an executive order requiring federal contractors to provide sick leave and Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg could robustly enforce existing rail safety laws to challenge harmful policies. There's a lot more, and we're really fortunate to have labor historian Mike Goldfield with us to sort it all out, including a deeper look into why this arcane act to prevent transportation workers from striking came into being and why it's still in effect. Mike Goldfield is a former civil rights movement and labor activist, professor emeritus at Wayne State University. He's currently a research associate at Wayne State's Fraser Center for the Study of Workplace Issues. He's also the author of many books and articles on labor, race, and the global economy, including The Decline of Organized Labor in the U.S., Labor Globalization and the State, and most recently, one that we talked about right here, The Southern Key. Class, Race, and Radicalism in the 1930s and 1940s. Michael Goldfield, welcome back. Oh, thank you, Susie. I'm just happy to be here. And there have been dozens, if not hundreds, of articles on the current issues in the railroad strike. So what I'd like to do is give a bit of background on the rail industry and 
railroad unions and the attempts to organize and fight for their rights of railroad workers. Perfect. Railroads are central to the U.S. economy and have been for a long time. 40% of all shipping takes place over rails, and it's the majority of non-spoilage items, which would include food and a lot of other things. Railroads were the first national industry. They also created the initial national economy. This took place after the Civil War, which ended in 1865. It was facilitated by the Morrill Tariff Act, which put high duties on imported goods. The Transcontinental Railroad was finished in May 10, 1869, when the Golden Spike was driven in with much ceremony in Promontory, Utah, near Salt Lake City, establishing the, the connection from coast to coast. Thousands of workers, mostly Chinese, died during the winter of 1866 to 67, tunneling through the Sierra Nevada mountains with dynamite and shovels being crushed, blown up, sometimes frozen to death and buried under snow. And things don't uh, change that much. Qatar immigrant workers died by the thousands constructing the World Cup football venues. In terms of development, Railroads in the economy developed rapidly. In 1865, there were 35,000 miles of track. By 1890, there were 160,000. And by 1900, there were 217,000. Steel developed in this country first to be used to make rails. By 1900, the United States was the leading producer of steel. Coal went up after the Civil War, from 10 million tons to over 200 million tons in 1900. Hogs, cattle, and everything else went coast to coast. The employment at its peak at the end of World War I was 2 million railroad workers. By 1947, that was down to 1.5 million, 1 million in 1957, half million in 1980, Today, 2022, approximately 200,000 railroad workers. These numbers are hard to count because there are a lot of people who work and do things on railroads who aren't counted as railroad workers. They And certainly there are tens of thousands of other workers who are central to railroads who are not counted in the figures. Much of the de- decrease from World War I was fostered by technology. Originally, there were four-person crews. Diesel engines developed in the late 1930s and were pretty much fully used by the early 1960s. That eliminated firemen, people who shoveled coal into steam engines. Uh, brakemen uh, technology was developed where individuals did not have to physically apply brakes. So the labor force of railroad workers has been characterized historically by huge militancy, but also lots of fragmentation. There are craft unions, still a dozen today, and there are dozens of occupational categories, many of them in different unions. The militancy historically has been huge. In 1877, there were national railroad strikes led by the Knights of Labor, a somewhat radical militant organization. Troops were called out to crush railroad workers' strikes in centers around the country, pitched battles, 
with guns and pitchforks and everything else between railroad workers and troops took place. Over 100 railroad workers were killed. And President Rutherford B. Hayes called out the troops. And this was the beginning of building of national armories around the country. So the armories that one sees today that National Guards people use were built to have weapons to kill railroad workers when strikes <laughs> broke out. And the interesting thing is, and W.E.B. Du Bois talks about this, federal troops were pulled out of the South at the end of Reconstruction after the election of 1876, and those same troops were used to crush railroad workers. And Du Bois says that Northern workers did not understand that the liberation of blacks in the South was the kernel and meaning of the labor movement in the country. Well, let me just, can I interrupt you for just one second? I know you're, you know, giving an overall sort of political economy of the country, literally, and showing how key, you know, the transportation sector is, railroads, and now, of course, airplanes join them. But I think, you know, the the fact that this came to the fore raised, you know, certain educative moments for the country. One is that most people probably had no idea that there was a separate uh, Railroad Labor Act, Railway Labor Act, and that it was came into being more than 100 years ago, about 100 years ago, specifically to prevent work stoppages or strikes. That's on the one hand, and maybe on the other hand, which this is something you've just been bringing out, Mike Goldfield, and that is how key rail still is to the economy. So just from there, let's you're going back into the sort of history of how this came to be and you're coming up to the time that the Railway Labor Act came into being. So let's hear all about that. Yeah, so the, there are a number of massive strikes in which unions and union of activists tried to pull together all the crafts and at times even have one big union. The 1894 strike led by Eugene Debs founded the American Railroad Union. Debs had been a fireman himself. So in 1922, there was a strike. There were 16 unions. Seven of them went out. Between 400 and 600,000 railroad workers struck. They shut down the rail system. Um, the strike was defeated and crushed. And as a consequence, in 1926, the Railway Labor Act was passed, setting up the National Mediation Board, which still exists today. This act was amended in 1934, and then again in 1936, adding airlines to the Railway Labor Act. And it's interesting, there's an interesting side thing on this. So FedEx was originally an air delivery system, and that's one of the reasons why they remain non-union today, because wow. it's so difficult often for air delivery systems to unionize compared to the trucking industry of which UPS, which is fully unionized, comes from. So this history of controlling and dividing workers through the Railway Labor Act exists. So, so truckers also have the ability to shut down the whole economy, but they've never used that and they've never been unified enough to do that. I want to add another gloss to this whole thing. So the craft union of railroad workers were among the racist of all unions historically. Yeah. 
Go in, back into that from the beginning, would you? So in 1894, when Eugene Debs led the organization, the American Railway Union, attempting to form a, an industrial union of railroad workers, he, he wanted the union to be open to everybody. And the leading brotherhoods, the craft unions, refused to do that. So black workers were not let into the main unions. They retained the, these restrictive bars through the 50s and even some of them into the 60s. And there were there were some horrific incidents in the South where railroad workers starting under slavery and later had been a large percentage of some of the occupations. Uh, some of the union white unions went about murdering higher status black railroad workers. Um, th this and so this is the history of the union an all male, all white unions. They were challenged when they came to join the AFL-CIO in the early 1960s. And with the civil rights movement of the 60s, things began to open up and there were hiring of more black workers. By the 1980s, there was more equities and the top crafts, engineers and conductors gained um, African-American workers and also women engineers. And you can see some of the pictures on the union websites in which women, black women, are heads of locals, of railroad workers and whatnot. So today, railroad workers are roughly 20% African-American, 7% Latino. The numbers of women is more difficult to ascertain because of the way the Bureau of Labor Statistics gathers this data. There are 12 unions today, still. The mm. is SMART TD, which stands for Sheet Metal, Air, Railway, and Transportation Workers, Dash TD, which is the Transportation Division. And this union uh, makes up about 30% of the um, railroad workers. They were the last one to reject the Biden brokered contract pushing a majority of railroad workers in opposition to the contract. So the situation today is that working conditions, particularly over the last decade or so, have deteriorated greatly with very little change in technology. So well, some... Yeah, let's just go into that because this is, you know, an awful lot to digest. And I was going to ask you to start on that because now... Yeah, I mean, in the very beginning, Mike, you talked about this huge shrinkage of the workforce because of technology and all the rest of it. Um, there's also um, the fact that there were very many more rails, railroad companies, and they've consolidated. So there's more monopoly now, too. So maybe you could talk a little bit about those changes and then we can look at the conditions. Right. So there are four extremely large railroad companies. And for a while, they weren't making profits. Some of them were organized under Amtrak. The, the biggest ones have been given back to private ownership. So they, in order to make more money starting in the late 1980s, early um, 1990s, they developed something called Precision Schedule Railroading, PSR. And PSR was supposed to make the the system more efficient. But instead, 
large financial terms of what's commonly called vulture capitalism have taken over railroad companies to the detriment of workers, communities, and even business customers. If you look at the news today, the Railroad Regulatory Board has been holding hearings and they've been attacking the railroad companies, particularly one or two of the larger ones, Union Pacific, saying that they've lied on their data about hiring workers, that they've had too many stoppages of trains and therefore not delivering goods. And they've had a thousand in the past year as opposed to five or 10, 10 years ago. And this, this is, these are hearings from the Surface Transportation Board and shippers are attacking the railroads and defending the workers. And these are big capitalist shippers, big companies. So what's happened? So the financial firms, vulture capitalism, taking over the railroads, they've invested way less money in infrastructure and tracks and employees. And in the past 10 years, they've spent $200 billion in buybacks and in, and in increasing dividends for shareholders. Uh, and this is similar to what we've seen happen in the in the healthcare industry, as large conglomerates, financial conglomerates buy healthcare systems, they decide, among other things, that rural hospitals are not profitable. In the United States, there's almost no rural healthcare anymore compared to what there was 10, 20 years ago. So, but, but Mike, also one of the things, like I think you mentioned it, that you know now they have these very long trains and very few workers in them. One of the things I heard one rail worker say is that you should never, ever have less than two people working the train. What if one of them gets sick, but now they only have one and it's very unsafe. And the goal of the rail companies is to fully automate and have none, making it even worse. So uh, could you address just just those, te- you know, you're talking now about how the vulture capitalist firms are essentially devouring what exists in order to create uh, dividends and profits. But yeah. There's some technology involved in longer trains. They've been able to put engines not only at the beginning of the train and the end, but even in the middle and control them by software. Of course, the rail system is not built for carrying these long trains and the loads are uneven. They break down more frequently they're also a danger to communities. So police, firefighters, EMS people have to wait far longer to cross tracks. And if the trains break down, which they do much more frequently, people on the other side are screwed from getting emergency services. So there's a community issue involved. Um, shippers are annoyed. Nobody's getting their parts. And, of course, it's all blamed on the, the you know, supposedly the supply chain, but one of the biggest blocks to this is the railroads. So at one point, not 10, 15 years ago, railroads were putting as much as 80% of their revenue into infrastructure and wages. And now it's close somewhere in the 50 to 60% range, and the rest is being siphoned off as profits. And 
While doing this, they've raised prices for shippers, and shippers are complaining about lack of deliveries, prices too high. This has also created incredible dangers for workers. So if you have a train a couple miles long and something goes off the tracks, it could be in the middle of Wyoming someplace where it's 10 below zero, and one of the two workers on the train may have to run a mile down the tracks to see what's going on. Wow. So workers' safety has deteriorated, and in cutting back on the workforce, they ran into a big problem. So the the workers are now on call or working 94% of the time. The national average for full-time workers is 24%. Here's where the sick pay issue comes in. It's not that the companies don't have the money to pay sick pay, which is what a lot of the news stuff and, and even people on the left are saying. What's happened is they've cut the workforce back so much that during the pandemic, they lost workers, older workers retired early. So they're really stretched to the bone and they're much worse than they were before the pandemic. And they haven't been able to hire sufficient people. And unlike um, delivering packages, for example, it takes a lot of training to drive a train. It takes a lot of training to fix tracks. Even workers who are on the job for six months, other workers complain that this isn't a safe situation. So the inability to hire has put them in a quandary. And and, And the quandary for them is that If they give sick pay, the number of hours worked diminishes greatly and they can't run the trains. So it's not just that they don't want to pay sick pay. They don't have the workers to replace the time that these workers who might get sick, you know, who would be doing the work or who would be on call. Nor would they be able to attract anybody to a job that doesn't allow any time off. So... All things considered in the American workforce, the pay is not that bad. Conditions are overwhelming. People working on trains and on call often have to be out of town for periods of time. And previously, they didn't even pay for people's hotels or food, which is something they're now getting in the new contract. So they argued successfully that being away from home for three, four, five days, a week, two weeks, was not something they should have to pay for. So this is an untenable situation for the workers. It's an untenable situation for communities that these trains pass through. And it's an especially untenable situation for the workers. So I just want to emphasize, it's not just the financial problem the railroads have made so much money in the past couple of years that they could afford to pay sick pays if they had beefed up the workforce and trained sufficient workers to do that. So it's not just about sick pay. It's about the whole situation that's deteriorated. And as the hearings that took place yesterday before the Surface Transportation Board in today, the, the What happened there? Let our listeners know what happened in those hearings. So in the hearings, 
the railroads were supposed to have given detailed data on their hiring practices, why they've had so many stoppages, which are called embargoes, <laughs> and what they've been done about this. So they they put a lot of vague information out, which was not what they were legally supposed to do. The Surface Transportation Board, which is the government board, attacked them for lying about and not doing the data. And shippers showed up to attack the railroad companies. And usually shippers and other capitalists are on the same same page. So we're plunging into something as a disaster. And as many of us know, the U.S. rail system compared to Europe and China and other places were not so good to begin with. Well, let me ask you this, uh, Mike Goldfield, because what we saw was, you know, this historic challenge, let's say. And I was all in favor of the workers, you know, rejecting it and going out on strike on December 9th. But instead, they were forced back to work. And Biden, you know, who came in as the most pro-labor president, took the wrong side in this one and and sided with the railway companies because he feared that it would be too disruptive to the economy. And I don't know if he thought that uh, Congress would then be able to pass legislation forcing them to, you know, have paid sick days, but it didn't come through. And, you know, given the numbers and the polarization and the anti-worker Republicans, that could have been, you know, understood in advance that that wasn't going to happen. There's a lot of articles that have come out, though, that said Biden still has leeway. Congress could get rid of the Railway Labor Act. They could also force or expand federal sick pay. And these are almost these are federal workers, they say. So there are things that could sick pay could they could get seven days sick pay. That's one of their central demands. But as you're saying, uh, Mike Goldfield, it's a lot more than that. The conditions of work, needing more workers, all of those things. And is that something that would come under these private companies or would the government and the transportation sector have some say? Well, the idea that we have private railroads yeah. develop capitalist country seems to me unconscionable. And in many countries, the railroads are owned by the government. I'm not saying that that goes far enough, but that creates a different situation than this blood-sucking type of vulture capitalism that we have in this country. So th there's also a that, that the final play in Congress, there's some articles that claim that, that that result came about because of the way the railroad unions themselves lobbied. And for a while, they thought they had enough Republican, the, the, the key unions thought they had enough Republican votes in Congress before they were pressured by big capitalists to do that. And there's an article by Russ Grimm, uh, I forget what magazine it is, that, that argues that and talks about the maneuvering in which even some people in labor notes were involved in some of the lobbying with so-called progressive people in Congress. And I'm not trying to make apologies for Biden or what they did, but the whole maneuvering that took place seems to me was complicated and perhaps under some illusions also. But the key thing about railroad workers today and since the 1870s 
is that they have structural power to shut down the whole economy. Exactly. So I think it's wonderful that all the Starbucks workers are organizing. There are 9,000 Starbucks stores, but if they all shut down, there are 45,000 coffee shops in this country. So if all of Starbucks shut down, no one would be without their coffee. And even if people were without their coffee, that wouldn't shut down the whole economy. So what you're saying is that railway, you know, this is something we learned early on. Transportation workers, railway workers, telecommunications workers, they have social weight. And what they do is 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 far more consequential is what you're saying. And it looks like, I mean, given that, you know, these conditions and they were quite militant and they've rejected the agreement. What do you think could happen now? I mean, continue your thought about how important this. We also are now seeing and we've just talked about, you know, the largest strike ever in higher education. And this has huge impact, you know, for the economy and could challenge that what we call the neoliberalization of, of education, higher education in this country, depending on how it comes out. But 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 rail workers, that's, you know, and and, and we have to say the UC strike is against governments, you know, a state government. This is against private corporations. So. What leverage, let's say, does the government have to force these companies to uh, allow sick days, to extend the safety uh, conditions on the railways and for the workers? So railroad workers have what I call, and I discussed this in the book that we discussed earlier in Southern Key, what workers have structural power in the economy as a whole or over their companies. Railroad workers like coal miners in the 1930s who supplied most of the energy for the country, and they don't anymore, and they don't have this leverage, have incredible leverage to shut down the the economy. That's one reason why the Railway Labor Act exists. There's no act to keep coffee workers or retail workers from striking. And no one's even thought of anything like that, because it doesn't impact the economy. The problem with railroad workers, there are 12 unions of railroad workers. There's a lot of difficulty getting all the unions to be on the same page. And this is in some ways by design. So one of the demands of unionists, and this is also Railway Workers United, which is a big rank and file group, which is active in all the railway unions, uh, or in most of them in any case. So this was the demand of Eugene Debs, the American Railway Union, industrialize and unify all railway workers in one union. There were racial divisions. So when the 1922 strike took place, more radical unionists, including William Z. Foster, the head of the Trade Union Education League, Throughout the 20s, they demanded amalgamation of the crafts. And in some industries, this took place. So in auto and steel, where there were many craft unions involved, workers unified to form industrial unions. This hasn't happened in rail. And it's one of the reasons that there's so much difficulty in having a militant unified front. Railway workers are certainly angry and upset across the board. All the interviews done, I don't know what type of polling has been done, but people across the board, whether they be at the highest occupations or the lowest skilled ones, 
yard workers, engineers, all the engineers being the most highly paid and skilled workers are all pretty upset about the situation as far as one can tell. So I think the future involves these workers being unified. It's a fragmented industry. We have the same thing that exists in air transportation, also a crucial link, where except for one or two big airlines like um, Delta, most of the workers are unionized, but it's very fragmented by company and by uh, occupation. Pilots have a different union. Baggage handlers have a different union, et cetera, et cetera. So the idea of industrial unionism in the railroad industry would go an incredible way towards providing additional leverage. And Back to the OBU, as, as the anarchist syndicalist said, the one big union. Well, that was a one big union in which one union for everybody. But certainly yeah. one industrial union in the industry would go a long way to giving the railroad workers greater leverage. So during World War II, when coal miners went on strike, they had one union and the government says we're going to seize the mines and the workers. And when they did that, all the rest of the coal miners in the country went out and they had signs, which you can read, that says you can't mine coal with bayonets. <laughs> Nobody in their right mind goes down in a coal mine without being trained and without having other skilled people with them. And I think the same thing would be true of railroad workers, that if railroad workers all went out on strike, um, the trains would not move. Nobody's going to drive it. It's hard enough for people with only six months training to move these trains. The idea that you wouldn't have brakes and track splits working and everything else is um, sort of unfathomable to think about. So. That's one of the problems that railroad workers have is the division among crafts and among at now 12 different unions. Now, I say 12, but there are three or four unions that just have 1% or 2% of right. the workers, but there are still three or four fairly big unions uh, that have a lot of members in the railroad industry. Let me ask you this, Mike Goldfield, because you know that seems to be Sort of, but I would say that the consensus that I can see is that the workers are very angry, and they they rejected this agreement, but nonetheless are being forced back to work. So it seems like this isn't over. Is that your reading of it as well? So I think that there's ongoing. Um, so, so today, the biggest union that I mentioned before, Smart TD, is holding rallies at, at about a dozen or so rail centers, they keep adding more. So when I look at the website, it may be up to a dozen rail centers around the country. They're trying to keep support alive. They think that the battle in Congress has raised the issue nationally about what type of things they're going through. We've seen dozens, if not hundreds of articles, mostly sympathetic to the railroad workers in the national media, whereas before, as one engineer said, people just assumed that uh, they I was the person who, who waved as they went by and didn't realize the conditions they were working on. So 
that's one thing. They seem to also have the support of all the rest of the unionized workers and probably a lot of non-union workers as well. It's hard to know where this is going, whether they'll be able to, now that the contract has been officially shoved down their throat. And to also be realistic, it was a narrow majority of people that rejected the contract. Mm, So if we look in comparison, there was a big EV plant in Ohio that just voted to unionize, and the vote was... I don't remember the exact figure, but it was 700 and something to 10. Wow. In favor of the union. So there's no question uh, about a company saying, well, there's a few messed up votes and you didn't count right. I mean, it's clear that 99% of the workers wanted the union deal done. So there isn't this type of unanimity, at least if we look at the votes on the contract among railroad workers at this time. Some of the strike votes that we've seen have been fairly overwhelming. I think that's also been true of some of the academic workers, right? Yes, absolutely. And I read an article today that uh, one of the big nurses unions settled after the workers voted overwhelmingly to authorize a strike. So, there's a certain amount of division among railroad workers that doesn't seem to exist among certain other workers at the present time. So it's hard to predict what will happen. I would like to see a group like Railroad Workers United have large support from workers in all the different things and have a unified front that could happen. All this remains to be seen. So I I don't want to paint an overly rosy picture or an overly pessimistic picture, but it seems to me it's hard to know exactly what's going to happen. And we're not talking about the coal miners of the 1930s and 1940s, at least not yet. No, thank you for that, uh, Mike Goldfield. I think think that's a good way to end it. I, I would just add that, you know, we're in a situation in the United States over the last year, especially, but it's been building where we're seeing more and more strikes. And as you said, more and more campaigns for unionization, the sentiment has shifted entirely from where it was. And the battle is also on now, not just, you know, in terms of workers versus, you know, their employers, but also pushing their union representatives to be uh, less in a sort of concession mode and more in a in a class struggle fighting mode uh, because, you know, unions have taken such a hit. Sometimes the leadership is, you know, hasn't kept up with the, you know, the militancy of the workers themselves. So I think in, in general, we're in a better place than we've been in a very long time. And it's, you know, it's very discouraging to see what happened in this case. But, you know, my view, like yours, is that it's not over and that these workers, you say, are in a structural position. I'd say they have social weight. If there were a rail strike, if the contract doesn't work out and they continue, that could reignite even more sectors of workers to demand better quality of life, which is what this really is all about. No, I think that's true. And labor upsurges are almost impossible to predict in advance. Yeah. So, for example, before the 1960 New York City teachers' strike, 
virtually every industrial relations person talked about how government workers would never organize. They were too professional. They uh, there were too many penalties for striking. It's they had permanent round year employment and weren't laid off. Blah blah blah, and. In 1960, 50,000 school teachers in New York City and New York State had the most draconian anti-labor legislation in the country. People were supposed to be jailed for long periods of time, fired, lose everything. The teachers struck together. There were virtually no um, locals of the American Federation of Teachers in the country. And within weeks after they'd won their strike, every major city in, in the United States had a vibrant teachers union and millions of teachers organized and teachers are still among the most militant people. Just one interesting thing. So on the auto workers, which has been for quite a long time, a very concessionary union, not yeah. very liberal, not very democratic. The old leadership was just overthrown. And oppositionists have taken over. And today, it turns out that the UAW has probably more academic workers right. than it has auto workers. And I, I take it that most of those workers in the California system were organized by the auto workers, right? Yeah, it's UAW 2865 and one other section. And in this interview that I just did with with several of the strikers, and organizers, you know, they kind of say that the UAW should now stand for Union of Academic Workers because that's the largest section now of the union and this is the biggest strike. Right. So there's lots of dynamic things going on. But in terms of challenging the uh, auto workers leadership and on the executive board, which has, I, I don't remember the exact number, about 15 people. Six of the positions were won outright by oppositionists. The presidential position is still in a runoff type of position. So this indicates that there's a lot of flux taking place among unions and among workers. And uh, one can be hopeful about the coming period. I think we should leave it there. That's a great place to end. And I want to thank you so much, Mike Goldfield, for doing this and for giving us this broad overview, not only of the sort of history, but the political economy as well of the railroad industry and its place in terms of the, the balance of forces in the society. Michael Goldfield is a former civil rights movement and labor activist. He's also a professor emeritus at Wayne State University. He's currently a research associate at their Fraser Center for the Study of Workplace Issues and has written numerous books. We talked about one right here called The Southern Key, Class, Race, and Radicalism in the 30s and 40s. And that really gives you even more of the background of labor. Mike, thanks so much for joining us today on Jacobin Radio. My pleasure. Absolutely. Thanks. Thanks.